You are listening to Fanfare Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Wolcaster. That's not true. Greetings one and all and welcome to Reaction Chat for episode 10 of Star Wars Andor, brought to you by those freedom fighters at fanfortracks.com. To recap, Mon Mothma is running out of options on how to transfer large sums of money from her family account without raising any Imperial red flags, so her new best friend and ex-boyfriend Takeoma suggests that they ask for help from a man named Devil Skulden, someone Mon Mothma considers a thug and someone she should not be associated with. Imperial Security pick up a pilot working for the rebel separatist Anto Krieger. After a brief interrogation, ISB learns that Krieger plans to attack a power station on Spalus, and so they concoct a plan to trap Krieger and wipe out his rebel force. Back on the prison planet in Arkina 5, Cassian Andor and Kino Loy discover that a fellow prisoner who was supposed to be released but was instead transferred to another level was a reason for the prison wiping out 100 men after word got out on level 2. After the death of Olaf, Kino and Cassian's greatest fears are confirmed. No one is getting out alive. Joining me on this proverbial prison break is a man who can swim and swims like a dolphin, Mark Newbold. So, episode 10, One Way Out. What did you make of it, Mark? This was, I would say, with confidence the best episode of Andor so far. And I know that is a really just sort of spurious thing to say because every episode's different and got its own charms and such. It had the action. It had the depth. It had insane performances, just just award-winningly good performances. And the plots moved forward. And just everything about it just worked and, and just sung. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, this was the satisfying conclusion that I think we were all kind of expecting, to be fair, for the prison break. However, as you said, I don't think we were quite expecting just the scale and the depth of what we got. And also, obviously, that, that slight, you know, sad tinge to it where obviously we, right at the end, Keanu Loy's at the top and he's like, I can't swim. What's quite nice is that the choice of doing anything for Andor is taken out of his hands because he gets knocked off into the water. It means that he's not necessarily going to try and help him. That decision was taken out of it. So I thought that was really really fantastic but actually for me i think the biggest surprise of this episode was the lufen story the sudden reveal of actually yes there is a rebel spy working within the isb but it's not deidre miro but the little quiet chap who's in the background who's kind of sat there you know being fairly innocuous and what you would expect a rebel spy to be like lonnie jung who Turns out to be like smash between a rock and a hard yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, horrible situation to be in. One, he's clearly been there for a long time and has worked his way up the ranks. And I didn't quite get, and I don't think they've made it clear yet, whether he came in as a spy or whether he turned as a spy or to become a spy, was dissatisfied with what he was seeing and somehow reached out or was contacted. And he was certainly monitored by Luthen. He's, he's his guy. The connection is there. But in terms of a career, you know, Luthen kind of says, you know, you're doing quite well. And, and I think almost he's overachieving in his role, which 
given the, the logic of the episode, the way that people are talking, especially the stuff to do with Spellhouse, with Anto Krieger's pilot who's been captured, killed, sent back to Kafreen, that whole sort of dance about if we pretend it's not happened, it'll look weird, so we've got to investigate. That whole bit where Dedra was like not looking particularly happy because Lonnie was coming up with good ideas, that was really interesting. So he's clearly doing a sort of inverted commas, a good job as an Imperial, which is exactly what he needs to do, and it goes right to the speech that Luthan says about we've got to be as bad as the good guys, we've got to do everything that the bad guys have done to defeat them at their own game. I think also Luthan's... In some respects, he's unloading yeah. Yeah. as well, isn't he? You know, on Lonnie, he's kind of saying, "Look, yes, you're sacrificing," and and obviously now the stakes have changed because Lonnie's now he's got a wife, he's got a kid, and obviously those are the kind of things that would then make you reassess why you're doing what you're doing, but also reassess the risks involved because he kind of probably knows that actually, yeah, it's not just the case that the Empire would come after him, but they would definitely come after yeah. his whole family. That whole monologue was just a, a heavyweight performance that I think the reason why we're so taken aback and so kind of blown away by it is the fact that, let's be fair, we just don't get treated to no. this kind of level of acting and this kind of uh, script writing in Star Wars very often, if at all before this series true. was very released. Very true, and, and I think also in an episode where you've just had Andy Serkis put in that performance, I mean, not like he hadn't been awesome in the previous two, especially the prior episode, that this one was just something else. Just everything about everything he did was just superb. And you're thinking that scene where he, I can't swim, as you've just mentioned, that whole sequence, and you're thinking, you're kind of expecting the episode to end there. And then, no, we switch to Coruscant. And then you get this heavyweight scene, this heavyweight speech from Luthan. It was just, it just, it just kept piling on the awesomeness. It just kept piling on the awesomeness. He talks about his ego, how he knows that he's never going to see the promised land, like you say. It's a kind of a Moses speech. You look at it on the page, and it is quite wordy, and it is quite considered, but it's Luthan unloading. He's essentially had those words and that speech in his head for years. He says, I wake up to an equation I wrote 15 years ago. It's, it's, you know, it's the manifesto, the whole stuff we've been thinking about since Aldani. It's the manifesto. It's all the thoughts of how is this rebellion going to justify itself when it actually comes up to everybody making a stand? We've got to be something to stand for, not just something to stand against. You can't just fight against what exists. You've got to be prepared to replace it with something better, which I think is ironic because you look at the history of Star Wars the Star Wars galaxy, the Star Wars story, yeah, they do away with the Empire to a large degree. And then by Jakku, a year after Endor, the Empire's pretty much gone. But the Republic screws it up so badly. And it's fascinating to see. And I think it's going to be because I'm certain as we move through the Revenge of the Sith to a New Hope era that we're kind of in now with elements of storytelling that at some point, and maybe we're waiting for technology to catch up, I don't know, I don't know what the constraints will be, but I'm certain at some point, like in the comic, we went between Star Wars and Empire, now we're Empire to Jedi. Storytelling doesn't always have to involve Han, Luke and Leia. So maybe we will get some sort of Star Wars storytelling mm -hmm. between Star Wars and Empire and really would be fantastic to have something between Empire and Jedi. But then what I think this show shows you is that actually you can have compelling Star Wars without even the mention of the Force, let alone yeah. Han, Luke and Leia. All you need to do is call it Boffins. And, you know, the main character be called Manny and you've got Manny Boffins and he dies at yes. the end of the, the series because that's the guy who discovers the second Death Star, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, there is a way that, yeah, you could totally have almost like a a sequel series to Andor, which clearly isn't Andor yeah. because Andor's dead. 
but it's written in a very similar kind of way. However, what makes this series work so well is it's a sentiment of oppression and it's a sentiment of trying to get people mobilised. Obviously, there's a big shift after the Battle of Yavin and people start to really coalesce and work together and also there's a more unified yeah. Rebel Alliance. And I think some of the sentiment I don't think would work. You know, the peril with Mon Mothma being discovered, for example, or even Lufen wouldn't necessarily be there so much because they would be outright rebels. But then that just means that the dynamics changed. And so you could have a different story. And maybe that is something worth exploring, would be an outright Rebel Alliance, purely Rebel Alliance story, oh, yeah. if that makes sense. So there's all those different task forces, isn't there? Like in between Empire and Jedi, currently like the storyline's talking about how like the Empire's kind of obliterating with different kind of strike forces and yeah. armadas and what have you, yeah. the, the Rebel Alliance has got. You only need to kind of pick one of those and you've got your kind of your second series. We're seeing Mon Mothma in the Senate. You see the decay. That It's a long decay. It's a long drop. It's a long fall. And you get to the prequel trilogy and you've still got the opulence. You've still got a system that kind of works. But we spoke to Zoraida Cordova last week and I asked the question and she couldn't really answer it. So it's kind of an unfair question. But one thing I noticed was that when you get to the Phantom Menace and you've got the scene at the mm-hmm. table when Anakin and Padme and Shmi and Qui-Gon are talking, Shmi says... The Republic doesn't exist out here. And you've got to a point where the Republic is is very much all about the inner systems, but not so much about the outer rim. In the whole Republic, it's all about striking, especially in phase two, it's all about striking out to prospect and find stuff in the outer rim. And my question was, and it was an unfair question because you can't answer it, where's the disconnect? What happens that you've gone from the whole Republic's MO is let's strike out and, and chart these systems let's make connections and let's all be one big republic which they kind of are in phase one to phantom menace which is a couple of centuries later but people living in the outer rim are like republic doesn't exist out here where did that go wrong and you look at all that we've seen in andor so far you've got that senate room where mothma is still the one person doing what she said she was doing i'm i'm going to be the irritant i'm going to be the you know the grit in the oyster i'm going to be the pain in the ass that's going to stand up and ask all these awkward questions in the senate and publicly be that person whilst quietly on the side i'm actually doing something else and there was the wonderful scene in here when she's with tay when he sort of brings in devos golden for that whole fascinating conversation about moving the money around and hey, maybe my 14-year-old son should meet your 13-year-old daughter, that whole thing, you know, which I found fascinating, that the whole dance between those two characters there and just the thought that Mothman now, and we've said this before because it's been building as parallels between characters, Luthan's at the point where we need to go. This needs to start happening. And we've just watched Cassian do the prison break and instill this riotous, rebellious spirit in all these prisoners half of which may well be murderers and terrorists. They're not all there because yeah. they just happen to mm-hmm. walk down the beach at the wrong time. There's probably some real bad guys in there. But nevertheless, <laughs> you know, the Imperial Doctrine is not doing the right thing by good guys or bad. Is that where Mothma's going to turn the corner and go, screw this, we, you know, I just need to get out of Dodge and make this happen. But the problem she's got, she's got the baggage. And I mean, I say baggage in the, in the nicest way. She's got a husband. He's a dick, but she's got a husband and she's got a reputation and she's got a <laughs> daughter. She's a brat, but she's got a daughter and she's got a cousin who's laying it out on the line with Vel. So she's got a lot to lose. Everyone's got a lot to lose. 
Cassian's mother's not well. You know, everyone's Bix is in a terrible situation. Everyone's got a lot to lose, but where do they just go this far no further? Hi, this is Amy Ratcliffe, and you're listening to Fanta Tracks. The one thing that I've really enjoyed that isn't quite so evident in some of the rest of Star Wars is just the camera framing yeah. of these scenes. Every scene with Mon Mothma, she's small she's kind of like stuck somewhere in in the middle of something like in this one you, she was yeah. stuck in between these two guys but because of a convex of the, the seat and circle she was therefore pushed further back she was made to look smaller than the other two guys but also she had this whacking great big chandelier which just looked like at any minute now it was just going to come crashing mm-hmm. down on her head which was just great framing and, and made me whilst I was watching it feel very claustrophobic and again it's just there to reinforce the kind of predicament that it's she is now cinematic, in. cinematic though you make a great point I don't think it's something we've talked about too much because the story's been no. so damn good and the performances have been so top drawn one of the things that never quite worked as well in some episodes, not all, but some episodes of Mando and a lot of Book of Boba Fett and even Obi-Wan Kenobi was Kenobi at times did feel like a TV show. Other moments it definitely yep. felt like mm-hmm. a cinematic thing you throw up on a big screen. But Andor so far, I would say pretty much to a fault, has felt cinematic I don't know whether that's the production values, the way they've made it, what the thought process going in was. You know that you could put Empire Strikes... I'm picking Empire as the classic example. You could put Empire Strikes back on the way the music spotted, the way that it's framed and shot. Nothing is more cinematic than Empire Strikes Back. There's no moments in Empire that feel like television. You get a Jedi, the camera's a lot tighter, the camera's a lot closer. The ILM stuff is big and wide and sweeping, but actually the camera's fairly tight in a lot of scenes in Jedi where it isn't so much in Empire. In Andor, people have picked up on that, the, the scene when her and Vel have the conversation in, in Nobody's Listening, the previous episode, and Vel leaves and Mothma's shoulders drop and her head drops and you can just, it's just so isolated with those huge, as you said, high arches, beautifully designed rooms. And yeah, it's a great observation. She really is isolated, alone and small. And Mon Mothma's not a small woman. She's not like layers, like five foot nothing. Mothma's not a small lady. So it's a great observation. But yeah, I don't think we've given enough credit to the way it's shot. From what I've read, it's about somewhere between 15 to $25 million Mm. per episode. So not by any stretch of imagination, a small budget and i think book of boba was about 100 yeah. million for the season yeah. but the thing is they're clever because what they're doing is they've they've saved a lot of money because they did three episodes in the highlands and you know you think about the the actual scenery and set that they had there it was pretty sparse it was only that dam and that kind of prison vault that they needed to do you then got ferrix which we know is a big site but has been reused yeah. multiple episodes and it's again like an anchor you know we've only really seen Mon Mothma in the Senate a couple of times and then we've seen her in her apartment for the rest of it so they've been really clever how they then shoot the series you know there's been a lot of photos and I know you and uh, Matt when I think we, you were down to London the other day you went to yeah. uh, like the Barbican you can see what they've done you know they've used a brutalist architecture around the Barbican centre And they've just used really kind of straightforward and very cleverly thought out set extensions and CGI to obviously make it feel bigger and a lot more like Coruscant. But the fact of the matter is they haven't had to build an apartment block or anything. They just, you know, just to get Cyril Khan into his mum's house. They just know they can do all that with CG. So they've been really savvy with how they've done it. And I think that in itself has allowed them to have that kind of scope. Plus also, I think it's just down to the DOP's understanding of the subtext of what's going on in each scene. And I'm guessing 
a lot of that is just down to the pre-production conversations that we're having between the directors and that. So I think they're really focusing on story and character in a way that really I don't think we ever have done in Star Wars to this extent. And there's so much about it that would fit in so neatly with dramas on any of your channels. It could be a BBC drama. It could be a Sky drama. It's got that about it. And yet it's almost the least Star Wars, Star Wars show. I came into Star Wars at a different point that you came into Star Wars. And if you role-played Star Wars, because you're 10 years younger than me, you might have role-played the wizard stuff, but I role-played the West End stuff. And so even in something like role-play, and somebody knew I would have role-played the fantasy flight stuff, I'm making silly examples, but there's lots of different entry points to Star Wars. And so whilst a lot of people are sort of saying, oh, there's loads about Star Wars that doesn't feel right to me let's say because of whatever you ingested first is kind of always that indelible memory that you take away with you and that's the benchmark for everything else with this there's so much about Andor because it is gritty real I wouldn't want to say kitchen sink but it's kind of got that about it that it just feels grounded it doesn't feel grounded in the world of 2022 it just feels grounded in the world of politics relationships and I say politics as a broad church and I'm not picking on I'm not saying I know Lucas mentioned, oh, there's bits of Vietnam, there's bits of Nixon, there's there's World War II references. He took bits from everywhere. He's the ultimate magpie. I think people are way too overt nowadays. People are way too on the nose. And it dates it. It just uh-huh, dates it yep. terribly. And I think this is so broad in the best sense. I enjoy our discussions on reaction chats. I love talking to Brian about it when he invites me on to Good Morning Tatooine. It's so substantial. We don't generally get that with Star Wars. For everything in one location, daily news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, video and social media feeds, bookmark fanthatracks.com for Star Wars news 24-7, 365. The irony is, is that this is the meat and potatoes that actually will give us contrast to when we do go and revisit Mandalorian mm. season three. Yeah when that comes out and suddenly we go back to something that's going to be a lot more action-packed and a different pace and that there will be people who will be like oh my god this is a star wars that i've been you know missing and was lacking from andor and that and you know there's no necessarily right or wrong about this whatsoever i think what it's doing is it's just given those who want a bit more meaty you know heavy going slower paced tv show which to be fair there's many on all streaming platforms nowadays it just gives people the option and it comes down to what we've talked about before in the past is that actually yeah not every star wars is going to be everybody's cup of tea and that doesn't necessarily make you a better or worse star wars fan if it doesn't really kind of like set your world on fire let's pick on brian brian doesn't like animation so therefore he doesn't watch animation doesn't make him any less of a star wars fan than than me and you just because we watch it so that in itself it's going to be good. And I think it will be interesting just to see how, when we get to season two, how that plays out. And again, it's just like how it all links in and how much it links in directly to Rogue One and then how much it links in directly to the original trilogy. But what I'm pretty safe and confident in knowing that whatever we get in season two is going to be astounding on multiple levels. And I really can't wait for it. I'm just a bit gutted that we do have to wait until 2024. Knowing that they've only really just started making it as well, pandemic's put a lot of things behind, but by the same token, what we're getting now is so high quality. I know we're not talking an awful lot about this episode. I think there's a lot of conversation about this episode because it has been so successful in telling this story. When we do come to, like you say, Mandalorian season three, for example, 
whilst this has just been a feast and a joy, and this is the show of all the shows we've had so far, three years this weekend since Mandalorian debuted, that's why we got the Grogu and the Dust Babies thing as a celebration of that. But this will be the show that you look back and go, wow, well, that came from Andor. That We know that because of Andor. We think this because of Andor, because there's things in this show that are going to put a different spin on the things that we know, but in a way that sometimes you worry that certain story, there were certain story things in Tales of the Jedi that actually changed not just the way we view things, but actually what happened. I'm all in for a story making you look at another story in a different way. It doesn't change what happened. It doesn't contradict it. It doesn't go against it, but it makes you look at it in a different way in the way that over the years when we were kids, Han Solo, coolest guy, best pilot, best gunman, best smuggler, best everything, got the girl, la, la, la. You get a bit older and you realise he's a goofball that he's hanging on by his fingernails and he only got through it because of Chewie. You can look at characters like that and realise that Luke wasn't, not that he ever claimed to be, but Luke really was making it up as he went along. And Vader was way more conflicted than you ever thought he was when you first met the character. Of course, we've learnt so much about it. But I think with Andor, when we get to the final episode in a couple of weeks' time, and then, like you say, we've got to wait a couple of years for the next one. When we get Mandalorian, we'll be doing reaction chat, chewing through Mandalorian, buzzing because we've got a great action scene or a character we hadn't seen for years turns up, like Book of Boba Fett. We had Cad Bane turn up and Ahsoka turn up in season two. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've got Ahsoka to come. We've got Bad Batch to come. We've got a lot of stuff yeah, before yeah. we even get to Andor season two. We've got Acolyte before then. Lots of stuff that's going to be very different. And my very long-winded point, as I usually do make long-winded points, is that <laughs> Star Wars is such a broad church that you can have the action stuff and be satisfied with it. I don't want to be reading deep, meaningful books, or not that I ever get to read books that often, but I don't want to be reading or listening to heavy, intense music. Sometimes I love listening to a bit of full-on, full-on heavy thumping metal. Next time I'll put a Disney soundtrack on, you know? You just need to mix it up a bit. And I think Star Wars is in a very good place because it has has got all the strings to the bow. It's, It's all in there. You've got your kids stuff. You've got your action stuff. You've got your thoughtful, deep stuff now with Andor, which we may be were lacking before. It's all there now. And I hope that Lucasfilm, that, you know, the people that are coming up with the stories realize this. The shackles are so off now. Marvel's done it brilliantly for years. They've done goofy stuff. They've done serious stuff. They've done action stuff. They've just thought, let's do something nobody's expected, like Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. And sometimes they fail. Sometimes they release the Eternals. Other times they release Guardians, and it's like, wow. You've got to be prepared for things to fail. And I know Star Wars has got this crazy high watermark because how do you follow Star Wars Empire and Jedi? And if you're open enough to accept it all and just enjoy it, there's something to take away from all of it, and Andor is just... For me and for you, clearly, it's a feast. I'm Brian Herring, BB-8 puppeteer, and you're listening to Tracks. That'll learn you. Now, do you think that we're going to see Kino Loy again this season, or do you think that they've left his, shall we say, his fate vague for the time being anyway, because, yeah, we might see him again in season two. And also mm. Melchi. We, we've seen Melchi and, and Andor kind of work on this plan, supposedly together, and, you know, both of them pretty damn handy and pretty brutal with yeah. blasters let's be fair they then make it to the shore together so do you think these two are going to stay together for the final um, two episodes of the season first on Kino, you didn't see him die and i think if tony gilroy wanted to underline the fact that he didn't survive you would have seen him die this isn't a show yeah, exactly. that's shy on on stuff like that rogue one certainly wasn't so an andor is a long form very much in that vein 
kind of story. So I think if he wanted him gone, if Andy Serkis had said, I'll do three episodes, but I'm out, they would have made sure that, or he'd have jumped in and drowned. You've had a safe and private Ryan bit with him dragged under the water and, you, you know, something would have come up and eaten him or I don't know, whatever. If they wanted him dead, you would have seen it. And he actually said, I think on a, in a tweet, I think it might have been a variety interview where it came up and he said, well, you never saw him die. Who, say, who said he's dead? I don't know if you'll see him this season, but my head tells me that season two, it's going to go one of two ways. He's either going to turn up as an Imperial or he's going to turn up as a rebel. And I just feel that the rebellious spirit has been kind of sparked in him. He was like, I consider myself dead already. So let's go and do what we can do. A bit gung-ho for a guy that was, you know, the floor manager. So I think you will see him again, but I don't think you'll see him again this season. But I'd be very happy to be wrong. Very, very happy to be wrong. I'd love to see him turn up. Or maybe he comes up on the beach 10 minutes later and chases him and Melchie down. And speaking of Melchie, I like the fact that there's a character that we didn't see a huge amount of in Rogue One, but he was very much there. And he was a likeable character. And of course, he goes out in Rogue One as well. They've not over-egged it. He's there. We know it's Melchi. So I do think they're going to stick together. It does feel like when Jin goes in and has the speech with the rebel Senate, whatever you want to call it, when they're all kind of dissenting and not agreeing and it was kind of frustrating. They're not there yet. They've not had the big ballsy moment yet, which is what Rogue One is, what Scarif is. When Jin comes out and there's Cassian with the team, when you watch Rogue One in its isolation, you kind of think he's just grabbed a bunch of guys and told them the score and they're like, yeah, screw it. Come on, let's go. But I think you're realising now with Melchi and, and hopefully with other people, there's no reason why you won't see a lot of those other actors come back as characters in season two. And it wasn't just happenstance and chance that those guys were the ones that stood up and said, yeah, let's go. They were Cassian's guys. And it does feel like the show that's not only the evolution of Cassian from what we saw on Ferrix. It wasn't just yeah. the guy that shot the two security guards on Preox and he's bringing other people in as well. So Kino could happen. Mm. Melchie's already there. What season two will bring us? And God, we've got to start thinking of season two, even though it's two years away. It's a long time to wait. With, with Kino, he'll find a way off. I hope anyway, they, they don't make him drag a grudge along. I, you know, I think it'll be great to see him just to kind of pop up without any real hint or expectations. I think that'd be quite fun. With Melchie... It's one of those odd things, isn't it? It's like, for those who know who he is, it's it's kind of very, kind of like, oh my God, that's Melchi. And then the people said, Melchi, Melchi, Melchi. And it's like, okay, yeah, we know it's him. But I suppose for those who don't really know or haven't really paid much attention, he'll just be this character that will kind of pop up. What it does is it makes me kind of think if we were meant to see more of Melchi in yes. Rogue One, yeah. he has a name. And not many characters seem to have names that they kind of verbalise in Rogue One. Were we meant to see more? I mean, obviously he's there at the beginning, he rescues Jin and that. It's just like there probably was more to his story that we probably would have seen in Rogue One that we didn't actually get. That would be interesting. What's your just kind of general overall thoughts then for the next two episodes? For me, I'm thinking they still got this issue with Marva. There's a brief scene in this week's episode where you get those women who kind of mention that she's not taking the medication and that now. So we we can lead to assume that her health is deteriorating. And it looks that there's also an Imperial spy there. So you've got Sintra there. There's also an Imperial spy there. So I think everything is going to be leading back to Ferrix. Whether or not it happens in episode 11 or if it's just going to be in episode 12, it seems like everything is going to be pulling Andor back. Bix, we assume, is incarcerated there. Maybe this is a, the time now that Andor might have a few kind of people around him, but maybe this is where he is like, right, it's time to, we're yeah. going to take her off planet, regardless if she wants to come or not. Dead Ramiro has said that they're keeping tabs on Ferrix. 
he'll go back. Yeah, his mother's there. That's why we've left her there. He's already come back once. He'll come back again. Bix is there. There's a connection there. Brasso's there. There's a connection there. So there's a lot of connections to Ferrix that just kind of make you think, yeah, he'll go back. Cintra's there. And the last time Cintra was told anything was, take this guy off the board. He knows too much. So will Cassian ever go back to Luthan? Or will Cassian just do his own thing? Because we're still at that factional point where there are different segments of rebels and, and they're not unified yet. They're all aiming for the same goal, but in very, very different ways. Partisan rebels, I don't think they're the real wild, full-on, far-out, let's ostracise ourselves from these nut jobs that they feel like they are in Rogue One. The way that Mon Mothma talks about them is very much they're a real problem yeah. and we want nothing to do with them. And just as to say that, I just wonder how far into season two Luthan will survive because he's clearly not around at the point of Rogue One. But by the same token, there's nothing happening in Rogue One that would require his involvement. If you think about it, there's no reason for him to die because there's no need for him to be in Rogue One. It's not something that would require his skills. Cassian's already there. All the other people are already there. The rebels at the point of Andor season one clearly don't have a fleet, don't have wings of X-Wings. They don't have any kind of setup. By Rogue One, they do. They're on Yavin. They've got Masasi base. There's all the stuff that they've got in place four years later. So there's no need for Luthan at that point. Maybe he's off doing something else, but I think he'll die. I don't think I don't see him being around. One thing we don't see a lot of in, in modern Star Wars television, don't see a lot of space battles. You really don't see a lot of space battles. Yeah. I just kind of feel like no. maybe something in that vein would be a great way to give us a bit of action just to take us out on a on an action visual high. You do think that at some point or another there needs to be some kind of thrust. But I suppose it also depends upon how literal you end up taking the opening crawl to New Hope about Rebels winning their first victory against the Empire. If Rogue One and Scarif literally is the very first coordinated rebel yeah. alliance assault on an imperial installation then yeah we're not going to but like you said we know for a fact that Saul Guerrero's got ships and he oh, clearly yeah. would use them so you'd think you'd see some kind of skirmishes around the place anyway but I suppose it all, all depends doesn't it again it kind of comes down to how much or how important to this story Saul Guerrero is and it comes back down to that notion of whether or not and or then goes out into the wider galaxy as the rebel spy as uh, fulcrum how much he even has to interact with saw guerrero's partisans or whether or not the beauty of andor is actually he can work by himself and he's more effective working solo or with k2so than working as part of a, a wider group suppose that is something that hopefully we'll we'll see a little bit more explored come season two for now let's leave the conversation here mark as always it's been fun and fantastic talking to you buddy so let's do it again in a couple of days time for episode 11 thanks for listening to making tracks if you want to be a part of the action and stay updated on all the latest star wars news visit panthertracks.com or check out the free panthertracks app for the app store to follow us on your mobile device you can reach out to us and send your listeners questions by emailing radio at panthertracks.com comment like and share on any of our social media feeds at panthertracks and be sure to subscribe leave a review preferably a five-star one on amazon music audible apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify or your podcatcher or smart speaker of choice and as always thanks to james temple for composing the panthertracks intro adam o'brien for 
for our making tracks opening music, and Mark Daniel and Vanessa Marshall for our voiceovers. Remember, tune in to Good Morning Tatooine. It's live Sunday evenings at 9 o'clock UK, 4pm Eastern, 1pm Pacific, on Facebook and YouTube. And check out our Fantatracks Radio Friday night rotation every Friday night at 7pm UK time for new episodes of the Phantom From Down Under, Planet Layer, Desert Planet Discs, Start Your Engines, Collecting Tracks, Cannon Fodder, and special episodes of Making Tracks. And that's me done for this episode everybody else stay safe take care thank you very much for listening may the force be with you coming up next on fanta tracks radio it's start your engines